0: Hello, Modern Woodworkers Association podcast listeners. It's me, your second favorite woodworking podcast host, Ben Strano from Shop Talk Live, reminding you about Fine Woodworking Live April 26th through 28th at the Southbridge Hotel and Conference Center in Southbridge, Massachusetts. It's a fantastic show. I don't need to list the presenters because it's a who's who, but I do need to tell you, it's a great chance to buy Diami Plotkia beer. So head on over to com right now to register and get ready to hang out with Diami Plotki and buy him beer.
1: Welcome to the Modern Woodworkers Association, a podcast about woodworking from folk who woodwork. Woodworking is what we do, who we are, and what we like to talk about. So join us as we have a drink, sit around, and talk woodworking.
2: Hi, and welcome to the 240th episode of the Modern Woodworkers Association podcast. I'm Kyle Barton of Waterfront Windsor's, and I'm here with my co-host, Sean Wisniewski of the Corner Workshop. Tonight, we're asking Joshua Klein the five questions.
1: So Joshua, how'd you get into woodworking? Uh, Well, I, I, got into woodworking, uh, because I was trying to figure out, you know, what do I want to do with my life? And I knew I wanted to work with my hands. And so I didn't, I didn't grow up woodworking necessarily. Um, my dad definitely had a workshop and built some things. Um, but you know, I was, I was the art kid. I was always in, into painting and drawing and that kind of stuff. So um, for whatever reason, wood wasn't a, a medium that I latched onto young, mm-hmm.
3: um,
1: and so yeah, I mean it was through it was through conservation. It was through learning antique conservation at the National Institute of Wood Finishing. Um, I started with musical instruments and went into furniture conservation and uh, went that whole path. And I just got uh, it was through seeing this antique furniture that I was intrigued about actually making this stuff myself, rather than just repairing it, mm-hmm. re- reverse engineering it and saying, I wonder what it's like to actually do that. Um, and, you know, so I read I read books and I uh, looked around, uh, around, you know, blogs and that kind of thing. But for the most part, I was looking at the objects themselves and trying to re- reproduce those marks. Um, I also saw a few, um, there are a few particular... Uh, videos that are online um, that are like 1920s footage. Um, oh yeah, there's one that yeah, I've a, seen
2: some of the. I've, I've seen some old woodworking type stuff. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's kind of it, interesting. Yeah,
1: it's really interesting because <laughs> there's this one um, that I absolutely love. Um, the name of it, it goes out of my head, but you might remember it if you saw it. It's a it's a 1920s Swedish video, and it has a clog maker, a chair maker, mm-hmm. and a... Mm-hmm carver or something like that
3: yeah for yep. sure.
1: Or, uh, different people in the shop and particularly uh the the chair making shop was so interesting to me because the way they're working i mean it is pretty no nonsense <laughs> it's pretty hasty pretty quick um and it was so interesting watching it saying that is exactly what i see on this all this old furniture mm-hmm. um that's the way that this stuff was done and it makes a lot of sense to me because the the period documents, um, the historic documents of how much journeymen were uh, charging masters for how much time they spent on furniture, mm-hmm. every, everybody agrees. We do not understand. It's shocking how fast they worked.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: it doesn't seem right. How, how could that possibly be without machines? And then you watch this, this 1920s Swedish video and you say, oh, I see. <laughs> and it explains all the rough tool marks on the inside, too, so... That was how I got into woodworking—is exploring that idea, and and what I found actually interestingly is, it's not enough if if you're trying to understand how this kind of you know pre-industrial woodworking was done, it's not enough to just use the tools they had because that's how I started. Mm-hmm. I, I tried to use the wooden, I, you know, used wooden hand planes and all the tools they had, and tried to make furniture that way, and it just didn't quite have the same character to it It just didn't quite look like the same thing i was looking at but then you look at the 1920s video and when i started working like that like seat of my pants fast 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 it all of a sudden starts looking pretty pretty authentic (laughs) so uh well well i know from the
2: winter chair background um i took a class with uh elio a couple years ago and he was explaining that the old Windsor chair makers—they um, could knock out a saddled seat in about uh, twenty minutes. Yeah, mm. and, and that's just incredible. I mean, hell, if I get if I get one done in you know two hours, I'm I'm proud of myself. And usually, it takes more than that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I I have to ask, like, when when you look at the, you mentioned uh, seeing these old tool marks and trying to recreate them as you then kind of discovered that it wasn't so much that they did it on purpose it was just their methods that did it or did you shift into trying to just find out and copy the methods instead of the necessary tool marks Does um, that makes sense <laughs> you know like if i and i know what you're like you have saying like the you know, the scalloping and, and the the rough mm-hmm. cutting on the undersides and all that stuff it's not so much to say like cuz they didn't do it on purpose
3: no, they did right, it because yeah.
0: the process caused that. Right. So it's not, it, it shifts from making it look like that to working in the same process.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, right? absolutely. I mean, I see those, those marks as uh, authentication, you know, they're, they're evidence of process. I mean, yeah. I think the reason those tool marks are there on the backside um, is probably the same reason that people use plywood on, or Masonite say on the back of a chest of drawers they make today because mm-hmm. no one really cares. Yeah. It doesn't really matter back Exactly. There. Um so, you know, I people, you know, may say, well, they would have used plywood if they had it. Well, yeah, exactly. What's the yeah, point? Yeah. That, that <laughs> point? Yeah, yeah. That, this is the plywood. I mean the, the boards, it's not even that just that they were rough. It's these boards are they're crappy <laughs> they're crappy boards.
0: Yeah. None you of us only- would
1: use them. We'd burn them. They're full of knots. They're terrible boards. And that is what's on the back of all. And what's interesting is it's like even the most high style stuff. I got a, um, a research grant and I went to the Winterthur Museum. And uh, Charlie Hummel was taking me through. And he was letting me look underneath in the backsides of the most high style, oh, cool. opulent American furniture. Mm-hmm. Incredible. And it's mm-hmm. all like that. It's mm-hmm. all really coarse. Um, and they used... Terrible wood for the undersides, usually. Um, there are, of course, exceptions. Um, but nothing was as refined as the the show surfaces. So, um, yeah, that was that whole idea of, like, wow, this is like a foreign country. This is like a foreign territory. How could you? What's the different mindset? That's how I got into woodworking.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, now I'm I'm hopelessly hooked.
0: So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very cool. So, you go. on to the next question. What What's your favorite tool? And you being a... Hand tool and not just a hand tool guy, but you write about it, you publish about it, you restore, you, you've researched. I'm very interested in your answer for what's your favorite tool?
1: Yeah, um, uh, just a little bit of uh, background or a little sure. bit of bigger picture. Um, mm-hmm. Almost all the tools I used uh, were probably picked by my friend Tanner, or <laughs> uh, there's a guy named Skip Brack in Maine. And he has three stores, the Liberty Tool Company, mm-hmm. uh, the Halls Cove, yeah. Yeah, Cove Tool Barn, and he has Captain Tinkham's in Searsport. These three stores. And he picks all over New England these antiques. And uh, Skip's passion is to provide user tools for people. He says, uh, what does he say? Convivial tools for a sustainable economy. You know, he, <laughs> he, he wants these things to be in people's hands, to be really making things in the world. It's not just quaint you know, mm-hmm. that's not what this is about. And so I would say probably 95% of my tools are from Skip. Um, and I, for a long time, I just had, you know, one tool chest, and that's how I made a living restoring furniture in a very small collection of antique tools. That was all I used. That was it. Um, and, uh, well, at that time, I also had a, a bandsaw as well. So I was still doing both uh, worlds. And then uh, since I built this new workshop with Mike, um, it's a like a 24 by 26 um, like a 1790s timber frame thing we're you know making the space so that we can have uh, students in so I've been going back to skips and I'm loading up on I want every I want to have room for you know six to eight students to all have a kit of antique tools so so all that to say I have a ton of old tools all around me um, and I'm some of them still are yet to be restored and worked on, but they're all user tools. They're not fancy collector tools. Mm-hmm. You know, my planes are mm-hmm. 20 bucks a piece. They're all just antique things. Um, and so the, the ones that to me jump out are um, because of my interest in, pers- you know, exploring the viability of hand tool only woodworking. <laughs> I'm looking at the tools. I love the tools that are, that do the coarsest work fast, these are the tools that blow people's minds uh, today, I find. Uh, so, the foreplane or you know, the jack plane is mm-hmm. a heavily cambered iron, it's a wooden body. I'm, I'm passionate about wooden body planes for many reasons, but especially for efficiency. Um, and so, taking really deep, heavy cuts with that gaping, wide open mouth I mean, these, these shavings should you should hear them hit the floor with the thud. You know, they're really, <laughs> really heavy shavings. So you are like
2: to... eight inch shavings.
1: Oh well, I mean, some basically if it's pine, you can get away with more. It's basically yeah. The mouth is not a restriction because it's wide open. It's more about your biceps,
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: possibly muscle through. Because yeah. I'm trying to, I'm using this as one step away from the hatchet, which I also use quite a bit. Um, so I, I have a fro oh. and I have splitting. Yeah, I stuff. would
2: assume these are narrow planes, relatively narrow. Narrow. To be able narrow? to muscle through. Um, oh, you know, well,
1: it's... the, the irons are, uh, a lot of them are two and an eighth, I think. Oh, really? Far. Okay. Yeah, so okay.
3: double
1: okay. iron, yeah. Double iron planes, uh, are a little bit wider. They're basically just like Stanleys, Um, but the mm-hmm. single iron planes tend to be a little bit more narrow. Um, yeah.
2: Cause I noticed, uh, yeah, I noticed, yeah. Some of them that sell the scrub planes are more
1: of a narrow. Type oh yeah. Plane. yeah. And that's, yeah, that's like a whole different thing. Scrub, scrub okay. planes are super narrow. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, so it's basically as much as I can muscle through. Um, so I would say my favorite tools are the hatchet, um, which is sharpened just like a carving chisel. I mean, it's razor sharp or it's not sharp. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a carving tool. Uh, but that's how you can, you know, instead of ripping off three quarters of an inch of, of material, why don't you just take, you know, a minute and a half and just hew it off and then take two passes with the foreplane plane. And you're like, right. done, you know, why mess around with anything else? Um, and then if I am going to rip something, I basically, um, if I'm using a regular handsaw, uh, I want the coarsest teeth I can possibly find. So like my, my distant or something like that, a four TPI rip saw that I can just really plow ahead and move fast. Um, when I teach students, uh, resaw or, you know, ripping by hand, I tell them to stay off the line. Just give yourself some room. Don't try to sit <laughs> right on the line. Don't even yeah. don't even try. I don't mm-hmm. because if you give yourself room, in two passes with the foreplane, you're on your line. So just go as fast as possible, um, and f- try to try to stay square and focus on that. But don't try to go slow and steady and right on the line. Cause then people are going to tell you hand tools are slow and you're going to believe it. So
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah, you gotta be smart about your work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean the core, I mean, and it's, you know, for those that don't know that, that, that course medium fine approach to that, you know, what, what are you doing? Oh, you're breaking down. Oh, that's rough. You know, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be like thousands of an inch table saw, smooth, Uh cut they'll just just rip the shit like just get it down like right and then then you can refine that and then you can really refine that like if when necessary but until then yeah just get at
1: it yeah i mean the the parts that need to be smooth are the outsides Mm -hmm. nothing else matters nothing Mm -hmm. else matters at all Mm -hmm. um and so you know that's why on the insides of uh table rails you'll see undercuts and it's all rough and coarse and tear out and all that kind of stuff um, that's 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 normal work, and so for me, you know, I think my smoothing plane. I, I made a smoothing plane, uh, a wooden one, and you know, I like it. It's great, but it makes it smooth.
3: <laughs> it's, not,
1: it's not very exciting to me. But the stuff <laughs> yeah. that can really get, you know, really get a lot of work done fast. My foreplane, I'm using probably certainly at least seventy five percent of the time. It's just a foreplane. I'm just mm-hmm. using everything, mm-hmm. um, and then. Trying plane, if you need something nice and straight, so you take a few passes with that, and then you're smoother once or twice. Done, but it's the foreplane that does all the work. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you make me want to sharpen my hatchet. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I've got a little single single bevel hatchet Mm -hmm. that honestly needs a new handle, and I've got a I got a a limb that I cut that I'm trying to form into it. I haven't touched in a long time, but yeah that that's exciting
3: yeah
2: well well uh i have i have a number of questions but i won't belabor the point <laughs> if you could succinctly so when do you favor the uh wooden body planes over say <sighs> the metal body planes
1: yeah um there are uh, several reasons um okay the the primary reason uh, well let's say the, the most important ones i think are um, the the lack of friction on the sole.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, as you you know, um, when you're planing on wood, for to economize your labor, you want to be lubricating the sole as much as possible, so you're reducing the friction on the surface. Um, with a wooden body plane, the, the friction of wood on wood is negligible; it's, it's mm-hmm. almost nothing. So if I lubricate the sole. I honestly almost, almost don't notice the difference at all because there is really so little friction. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, I was trained on metal body planes. That's all I, you know, I, I learned at first Yeah, um, and I was just constantly putting more, you know, applying more lubricant on them because it would yes. just slow down. Um, so that's really big, especially if you're trying to work fast with course, mm-hmm. so you're just wearing that out. But then I find, um, honestly, the, um, the, the adjusting is much quicker and more intuitive to me. If you want a deeper cut, you tap on the back of the eye. (laughs) And if you want to back it up, you tap in front of the, the escapement in the mouth of the throat there. And, Mm. uh, so it just jumps back up. You tap the wedge. It's so intuitive. And then, um, I guess the, there are other things, but the last thing I'll mention is when I'm planing, I can feel all the vibration of the wood through the body of the plane mm-hmm. um, more so than on a metal body plane. So it gives me, you know, if you're thinking about all your work and using all your senses to try to understand what your material is doing, any tiny little bit of tear out, you, know, you start to feel that more through the plane body. So even if I'm not hearing it or seeing it, I can feel it and mm-hmm. it, in a way that I couldn't with my metal body planes. So I feel much more. Um, aware of the work and what it's doing, um, so yeah, those are the primary. Yeah, I, just, I cool was just that? wondering. It's just a yeah. block of wood with an iron. And this is awesome. You know, it's yeah. so simple and it works so well. Yeah,
2: yeah, I was just wondering because you know all I have is metal body planes, and and um, I've been thinking I need to give some some wooden body planes a, a try. But you know, yeah. even with my metal body planes, I you know I use a hammer to adjust them, not you know yeah, side to side not front to back but i found i get a lot better adjustment than trying to use this gross adjuster that they come with
1: <laughs> totally yeah i mean yeah. that's what i found too yeah. the side to side you're, you're tapping it anyways i think a lot yeah. of people are so yeah you're already developing that ability to adjust yeah. so
3: yeah john I... did you
2: have some? i think i stepped on you
1: no 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 no, oh, no.
2: okay <laughs> well with uh with that so who's influenced you the most uh in your woodworking,
1: well, uh, I guess it probably wouldn't surprise you if I told you they're all dead. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, Jonathan my whole Fisher, um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, my, my whole frame of reference is I'm trying to find things that were made 200 years ago and say, how did this person do this? You know. Um, so, to be totally honest, that's my biggest influence, um, and. And so, I mean, the people that have that similar kind of uh, objective, I also find a lot of inspiration from. Peter Follinsby uh, does that really well um, with his 17th century furniture. Mm
3: -hmm. Um,
1: Of course, you need to mention, of course, Roy Underhill is a hero of mine. Hey, he's not dead. (laughs) No, (laughs) that's what I'm saying. So dead people and and Underhill who look back at the dead people and say, yeah, they really knew what they were doing.
3: Um, mm-hmm.
1: uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, those I would say pr- the two biggest, uh, modern woodworkers, uh, that have influenced me would be Fallen Spee and Underhill for sure. Definitely.
0: Peter's awesome. I, I got the chance of being his cameraman at a conference while he was presenting. He's is so cool. And you don't
2: expect that voice to come out of that man. Nope. <laughs> yeah that's that's all i gotta say it's the first time first time i uh i heard him speak and i was just like that voice should not be coming out of that man yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, but no he's great the
1: the other person uh you know i assume your question is specifically about uh woodworking skills
2: mm-hmm. but
1: but from a, a one step back uh um, it did not have to be yeah no oh, the The person that's influenced my thoughts about craft and life as a bigger picture mm-hmm. um, has been uh, Bill Copperthwaite. Um, Bill Copperthwaite wrote a book called A Handmade Life. Um, and I read that book, I don't know, at least 15 years ago, and it profoundly affected my life. It, it changed the whole course of my life, actually. Um, mm-hmm. He shows how um, he's very influenced by um, nonviolence and, you know, craft and handcraft and Mm -hmm. different ways that all these things work together, um, and rural living and stuff like that. So, you know, he's tying together all these interests I had in a way that was just so compelling. And so for me still, Copperthwaite is always coming to mind. So I definitely, uh, you know, that would be a recommendation. Uh, if if people are looking to think about, um, how craft connects to life, look up Copperthwaite and and check Mm. it.
0: I haven't heard of him, but yeah. No, yeah, no. no, I like a a handmade life in search of simplicity.
1: Yeah. Wow. How did you know that?
0: (laughs) I looked it up. There you go. Google is an amazing tool. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, and that's uh, that's interesting. I've already bought one book today, though. uh, (laughs) 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 My quote is
1: Phil. Yeah.
0: But uh, no, that's tomorrow then. Yeah, that's tomorrow. I'll put that in the (laughs) bookmark. So, uh, onto a different subject. What has been your s- biggest stumbling block? Now you're a a, a woodworker, a publisher, a uh, writer. Uh, I mean, there could be many things in there.
1: Yeah. Um. Well, I. I mean, I guess I would say, be because of my goals, you know, because of my my aim, what I'm trying to discover or figure out or understand. Um, I think. The biggest stumbling block I've had, um, in the beginning and now is, is honestly trying to unlearn, um, the, the right and wrong ways I was taught to do things. Um, the, the 20th and 21st century ideas about this is the way good working woodworking is, and this is the way, um, bad woodworking is because it, it doesn't really, uh, antique furniture doesn't seem to obey those rules i guess and so it's been hard for me to to unlearn that a little bit to go well this was how i was trained but but now you look at it historically they weren't bothered with this and they weren't you know so it's been hard for me to figure out um you know exactly my place in it but you know recently i've just sort of i i trust i trust the body of uh, this material that this is the way people worked um, but that's, that's the struggle I think for me is trying to figure out, um, how it fits into the 21st century and, and to, sh- to show, you know, others in the 21st century, the the beauty of this, this way of working. So, mm-hmm.
2: well, to stay in the late 20th century, maybe the 21st century. So how has the internet influenced your work?
1: Yeah, I, I, well, <laughs> If it's it's influenced it in the in the sense of you know there's the outward influence and the inward influence that you know I'm able to share a lot of things and I'm able to receive a lot of things from other people and this podcast you know is being recorded through all this uh, great technology that we can share and I think that's an mm-hmm. incredible thing um, and so it's influenced me in the um, it's inspired me with the the possibilities of what can be shared across the world. Um, Just today for we're, we're doing a workshop this summer and we were interviewing uh, candidates for this workshop through Skype and through FaceTime. Uh, We interviewed some people from Croatia today. You know, it's, it's it's incredible to me that uh, we can bond over craft through this, through the internet and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And you know, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or whatever, Um, all of these things are really great for connecting people. So that's inspiring to me. Um, but as far as where I I want to
2: stop you there. So, so what you're saying is you're going to have an international influence on your, on your project there on the workshop. Yeah. On the workshop, you could have some international students coming in. Yeah. Uh, That's incredible.
1: we We have, it's going to be an interesting thing. We have a lot of different we consciously wanted a, a very diverse group of people with different backgrounds and strengths, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's going to be a, a pretty uh, exciting thing to, to wow. see happen. So that's cool. Never mind. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, and we'll be posting about it on our blog. So, um, but yeah, so and then as far as you know, where I draw influence, I mean, to be totally honest, uh, the best thing about the internet for me is betterworldbooks.com where I can buy the books that I read about in the footnotes of the books in my library. Um, I, Uh. yeah, yeah. I mean, I I love books. I love working in the shop and, um, it's so great to be able to use, you know, I think the internet's so great for communication Mm -hmm. and research to find something quick so I can buy that book and find that Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, there are so many books that have so much information that you can't find anywhere on the internet. Um, and it's just incredible to, to dive into that. And so that's kind of where I'm focusing is I'm trying to, you know, I have a big stack of books that are already read and a big stack that's yet to be read and I'm trying to move more to the already read. So, um, that's the honest answer. Is that you know the the Instagram and the podcast stuff we do? All that's really peripheral to our right. print publication and my library. And I'm just you know uh, focusing on drawing inspiration from from those things. So, well,
2: fantastic. Well, um, so where can folks find you on the uh, on the internet? We were just yeah,
1: you know, <laughs> yeah, isn't that ironic? Right? <laughs> um, yeah, our website is mortisandtenonmag uh, mm-hmm. And that's that's our store. And we do have the blog on there. Um, so you could find our, you know, uh, the, the magazine and books and uh, instructional videos, if that's your thing. Um, and then, you know, you can connect with us uh, through that. So, Excellent.
2: Sean, where can folks find you?
0: Well, I am at uh, Sean W78 on most social medias, including untapped for your beer choices and uh, find me at Facebook. Kyle, how about you?
2: I'm at uh, Barton.Kyle on Instagram, the only social media platform that matters. <laughs> and uh, and Joshua, we should just tell you that's the inside joke.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Diami doesn't like it, and Kyle does, basically. Yeah. Oh. That's, that's the joke. <laughs> well, no, Diami's finally come around, so.
0: He, I think he has, because, well, yeah. I, at this point, Google has all but dropped Google+, yeah. Plus. so... That yeah, failed and, social and, media. And Twitter is...
2: now is just so toxic, I can't even
0: stand it. Yeah, yeah. No, I get it. <laughs> well, well, that just about wraps up the show. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the, us, uh, the show on iTunes or Google Play Music. As long as they still have that, maybe that'll go away too. Just search <laughs> for the Modern Woodworkers <laughs> Association. Uh, there you'll never uh, miss an, any of our exciting episodes. While you're there, please leave us a review. And once again,
2: thank you for listening to the Modern Woodworkers Association. If you like the show, please be sure to visit us at com. You can follow the MWA on Twitter at MWA underscore national, on Instagram at MWA underscore podcast. The best thing you can do is tell a friend. Word of mouth goes a long way in sharing our discussion.